Hello and welcome to the Fortune and Freedom podcast, where Nigel Farage and Nikolai Hubble give you a unique take on what's really going on in the world of finance, investing, and politics. We hope you sit back and enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to this week in review with Nigel Farage. Nigel, what's been happening on the economic calendar? The first thing to dig into is that wages in the UK rose by a record amount, 7.8%, the highest amount, as I said, since records began in 2001. What does this mean for the Bank of England's attempt to try and quash inflation here? Because the biggest fear for central bankers is this wage price spiral, the idea that people earning more will bid up prices even further. So in a way, this is not what they were hoping for, even though it's good news. Yeah, but it's all being presented as, oh, isn't it awful? People are earning more money. Well, actually, given the cost of living crisis, it's not that blooming bad. This is the first time that wages have been above inflation, you know, for a very long time. Um, yeah, clearly the Bank of England are concerned about it. Um, you know, our inflation is, well, it's more than double what the American rate of inflation is. It's higher than the Eurozone inflation. And we know a lot of the reasons why we've discussed this over the last 18 months or more. Um, so leaving the bank with a bit of a pickle, uh, the prevailing thought is we get one more rate rise and then perhaps another one before Christmas taking us to around about 6%. And that we stay there for some considerable period of time. Uh, good for savers. No one ever says that, by the way. No one ever says that. All interest rate rises are bad for everybody. No, actually, they might begin to encourage the culture of thrift again, which is something we haven't talked about for almost two decades, because there have been huge disincentives to save cash. Um, of course, it's tougher for borrowers. We all know that. We all understand that. Um, I think the real danger is that an incredibly stagnant United Kingdom is going with more interest rate rises to be pushed by Q4 into recession. And I think that is the big debate. Personally, personally, I would not put rates up any more than they are now. That, that's, that's where I am on this. I think living with inflation a pip or two higher than Rishi Sunak's projected forecast at the end of the year is a smaller price to pay than forcing us into recession. But I think, Nick, overhanging all of this is what's happening in China. And I don't think this is being talked about or thought about enough. China is overgeared and overstretched in the most truly astonishing way. If you think that property prices in the UK have been nuts uh, between eight and nine times average earnings for a, for a normal modest first house, in Beijing they reach 35 times earnings. And so we, we, you know, we are coming to the end of a massive speculative bubble in China. And we've already seen some quite big property collapses. Um, I'm told by experts that data that we can obtain from China uh, is now being reduced to a standstill. Even the official, this, this is really interesting, even the official Chinese youth unemployment rate, the last one we got from the Communist Party, that was running at 21%. So if that's what they're telling us, it probably is even more. So you've actually got some quite big deflationary pressures now coming from China. Um, and that's why this is the first time in 18 months I'm going to say we shouldn't worry too much about inflation right now. I think recessionary risk is bigger than inflation right now. Um, and, and I think, you know, the Chinese economy is such a big and important part of the world. Um, that we need to look a lot more closely at what's happening there. 
And it adds that element of a real potential crisis, a financial crisis, an economic crisis, rather than just a run-of-the-mill recession or that sort of issue. The interesting yeah. part of this to me is that global bond yields around the world are still rising, meaning interest rates are rising and, and bond markets are expecting interest rates to continue going up. So they're not pricing in what you're saying there about China. So it's it's sort of like there's two extreme risks here. The central bankers are focusing on the risk focusing on the risk of, of inflation getting out of hand due to a, a wage price spiral. And, and you and I would share your, your view. We're focusing on, on the risk of a deflationary crisis here. So far, bond markets are pricing in, in inflationary risks. If that changes, if the, the, the investment world financial markets start to price in more of a deflationary risk, what does that mean for investors? Oh, well, we're going to see some huge changes in bond in, in bonds and bond yields, of course. That's the obvious one. Um, the stock market is obviously for stock markets a lot. It is a lot more complicated. Um, I have to say, when you look at all of this, you think actually America, despite all its huge problems, looks a, looks a relatively safe bet, frankly, compared to Britain, the EU, China. Um, and I do feel that quite strongly that whatever, however useless Biden is, and, and whatever's going on, you know, in American cities, um, in relative terms, if things do turn as bad as they could, it's America that will come out of it better, I think, than everybody else. Um, look, you know, I'm not saying the inflationary pressures won't go away. You know, we've talked about monetary inflation, we've talked about money printing, and inflation will stay. I just think the risk of something very nasty happening as a result of the world's second largest global economy being in real trouble, um, is there. And I think if we look ahead to next year, if things do turn as ugly in China as I'm beginning to think they might, then the risk of a Taiwanese invasion becomes bigger, not smaller. Uh, and that's a theme that we'll return to. I may be slightly premature in talking about that now, but, you know, governments in trouble, um, restless, um, youth population without work, without money, without anywhere to live. Uh, you know, you can see the ingredients. You really can't. Sorry to interrupt, but if you're enjoying this content, you can get it every single day. Just click the link in the description or go to fortuneandfreedom.com. Get a daily email from our team of experts. Thank you. I was planning to spend a few months next year in Japan, so you might have ruined my plans there because I'm not sure I want to get that close. But uh, let's, let's change tack here to a weird story that came out of Alberta in Canada. As I understand it, the, the premier there, who's effectively the, the state's governor, um, said that they had put a moratorium on new renewable energy projects, so solar and wind, because the federal government had not permitted them to build any more gas power plants. And unless you want to go without power at all, you need a gas power plant to back up any new wind and solar projects. My question to you is, is this the end of the beginning of the renewables boom, or is it the beginning of the end of the renewables boom? It's the beginning of the end of the renewables boom. Yes, I mean, I do think that, and I, I, it's very interesting, actually. I mean, even North Sea expenditure is now slowing very rapidly because subsidies being reduced, you know, taxpayer subsidies being reduced. The sheer cost of putting these wretched things up is so huge. All the raw materials that go into the blades and everything else have become way, way, way more expensive. Um, and we're just not facing reality. Did you know, um, two mornings ago, at about nine o'clock, renewable energy in Britain was producing less than half a percent of our energy needs. You know, there was a, there was a still period of weather over the United Kingdom, and without coal and gas, the lights would have gone out. 
I mean, literally, the lights would have gone out. And so here you have a, a federal Canadian government under Monsieur Trudeau. Uh, we want to be ESG friendly, but it just, it, you know, it's colliding with Alberta, but it's actually colliding with the real world. And, and in the real world, this just doesn't work. And it's why, Nick, you know, we've said it before. We've written about it in the Fleet Street Lesser. You know, it's why, logically, you know, nuclear is going to have huge investment into it over the course of the next decade. The problem is that doesn't solve any of the short-term problems. So, yeah, and I think, you know, even in the United Kingdom, uh, for the first time, we're having a bit of a debate. I mean, I was sort of teasing two years ago we should have a referendum on net zero. And they were, you know, shock, horror. Well, guess what? There's now a group of Red Bull Tory MPs who think there should be a referendum on net zero. Now, they may be a small minority in Parliament, but just interesting to read the leaders of the Sun and the Mail. Just interesting. There is a, there is a, a change in the political weather uh, when it comes to basically the concept of energy security. And you only have to look at South Africa uh, today with a continuous rolling series of blackouts week on week to know what this means. So yes, there is a big shift, a big change in thinking. Uh, and as I say, the money, the, the money is not coming for renewable projects right at the moment in quite the same way that it was. So yeah, big shift going on, no question. Let's finish on an odd version of this debanking story. My interest is in whether it's going to spread to other parts of the economy, whether you know the companies that are using woke advertising and, and trying to indoctrinate their customers rather than sell to their customers, whether all of this is going to spread through the rest of um, the financial markets, through the corporate boardrooms, whether there's going to be accountability beyond what's happened within the banking system. It already has. It already has. You know, this, this sinister B Corp organization, you know, you, you, you get a certified tick from B Corp if you promote people on the basis of ethnicity and sexuality rather than ability. Um, and it's spread right through. And, and it's in the insurance industry. It's in the pensions industry. Um, it's quite interesting. I mean, it's, you know, you go back to the start of this Fortune and Freedom project, we said, whilst there are some very good people in the financial services industry, Actually, the industry itself is rotten to the core. Um, and the fish rots from the head down. But there is some progress. Um, the FCA have not only gone to the 30 leading banks and building societies and said, tell us by the 25th of August how many accounts you've closed in the last few months and what the reasons why. Uh, they've also announced an investigation into the politically exposed person scheme which almost unbelievably has 90,000 people on its list. I mean, utterly ludicrous. But there's going to be a public hearing. And guess what? They've asked me to appear. I can't wait. I mean, I won't be able to sleep ahead of appearing before these people. So there is something of a turn happening here. And I do think that the, just as we've discussed, there's a sort of re-debate about the fact you've got to have gas to back up wind, otherwise you're in cloud cuckoo land. Um, there is now a real debate going on about ESG, about diversion, uh, diversity and inclusion. Um, and, you know, what is the purpose of a bank? And what is the purpose of a financial regulator? Um, now, I'm not saying, you know, that I'm going to single-handedly turn this whole thing around, but there is now a debate. There is now actually a little bit of common sense 
uh, perhaps beginning to creep back into boardrooms and, you know, have a look at Bud Light. I mean, they thought it was a genius idea, you know, for their blue-collar, hard-drinking Bud Light, uh, predominantly male, manual labor, uh, uh, you know, uh, customers in America uh, to use this transactivist Dylan Mulvaney to advertise it, and sales have collapsed. Um, so, and there are quite a few examples of this now around the world. Um, so the, is this good news, good news, or bad news for investors? Or what should investors be be aware? Oh, no, look, I mean, I, I mean, look. The fact is that what anything anybody operating in the private sector at any sort of scale, their predominant uh, priority should be to return money to their shareholders and to their investors. And yes, of course, to do it legally. You know, I mean, I, I, you know, of course, capitalism needs some rules. Um, but those basic capitalist instincts of product, profit, redistribution of profits has kind of been replaced by this new concept that we're here to save the world. And it's a load of cobblers. And in economic terms, it's never going to work. So, so no, I think longer term, uh, this will be good for investors, and I think you'll start to see, you will start to see um, investment trusts, unit trusts, and others who say, you know what, we're just going for the max profit. We're not going to worry about all this nonsense. So, so look, you know, this it, it's all been going in this direction for years. There is now a debate and prospect of a slight turn, and that must be a good thing. Well, thank you for watching, and I hope you agree. It's never been more important to take control of your own money, your own financial situation. We do a daily free email, a fortune and freedom daily email with lots of knowledge, lots of insight. It's a very useful way of protecting yourself for the future. So please click the link in the description or go to fortuneandfreedom.com and get my daily email.